Welcome to episode 637 with my guest, Ashley Stahl. I want to welcome you, those that are new, to the podcast. Let you know who your host is in a couple of words. You hear the music, you hear the voice, you're saying this guy's smooth. Yeah, I am. You want some examples? One day somebody told me that the phrase is up and atom, not up and atom. I was 42 years old. You're in good hands. Smooth. Your host is a guy in the late 90s who was talking with someone who was dying of AIDS and had lost all feeling in their hands. Your host thought it was a perfect time to complain about his knee for 10 straight minutes. Smooth. Your host is a guy who once used the pickup line, please don't leave, I'm so lonely. Welcome to the podcast. I hope that, uh, I hope that acclimatizes anybody who's new to the podcast. Let's read some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Popcorn Patty. And uh, they ask, uh, what documentary would you say is the best to watch on the topic of mental health? I think uh, my favorite is Running From Crazy, uh, which was made by Mariel Hemingway, who was the granddaughter of uh, author Ernest Hemingway. And holy shit. Is there a lot of history of mental illness and dysfunction and her relationship uh, with her family members? But uh, she was a guest on the podcast a couple of years ago, and uh, that episode is still available. So recommend you not only watch the movie uh, Running From Crazy, but you listen to the episode. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Frankie and about their depression. They write, depression is grasping and never holding. Oh my God, that is so good. That is so good. Anxiety. Anxiety is sentencing without evidence. Oh, that's a good one. Who's barking? I'm, I'm dog-sitting, so I got, I got double trouble. Oh, something, something's afoot in the backyard. Love addiction is wanting to be held instead of dropped. Codependency is not knowing you're an asshole. Being a sex crime victim. Sexual assault is being convinced that you are nothing. Oh, those are so descriptive. Thank you for those. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Tired of Drama Llamas. And she asks, any advice for people who seem to be a magnet for drama seekers? That's so interesting that you ask this question because I just recorded um, a uh, psychologist, therapist uh, named Scott Lyons. And that episode should be airing in the next month or so. And he has a book out called Addicted to Drama. And we talk about that. Anyway, continuing with your question, I'm not sure why, but I seem to attract people who are more often than not looking for a fight, not with me, but they end up telling me all of their self-manufactured problems. For example, I've yet to find a hairdresser or waxing person who doesn't end up 
giving me an earful about their petty conflicts with others. I just want to relax, but end up becoming a sounding board for them during my appointment. Even my husband has marveled at how much strangers confide in me. I just want pleasant conversations with new people, not emotional dumps. I know this is a pattern I learned from being my parents' and grandparents' confidant as a child, but I can't handle it anymore. I'm tired of the negativity, and I want to treat myself to something like a haircut without being subjected to a pity party or rant. How do I break this cycle I'm in? Such a great question, and such an important topic. And... um, I don't have necessarily any answers to this, but uh, I have uh, questions that you might ask yourself Um, because some of these work for me. Changing the subject when somebody starts to go on a rant. Um, If there are people that you see more frequently than just a hairdresser, uh, you might try setting boundaries uh, with them. I've talked before on the podcast about Um, how I used to get phone calls from people in my support group who would just go on these ranting monologues or or sometimes not even ranting, just monologues for a half hour. And I had to set a boundary and say, you know, I care about you, but I'm starting to feel drained. I feel like an audience member. Um, The other things to, to ask yourself is, what kind of vibe are you giving off? Not that it's you bring this on yourself, but sometimes we engage in verbal and nonverbal cues that we're not even aware of if we grow up as people pleasers sometimes it's the open eager look in our face that is we're so accustomed to putting on because we want everybody in the room to feel comfortable it never occurs to us that that's an open door uh, potentially for somebody who wants to dump so you might try Um, at least around people that you're meeting for the first time, if you do want it to be pleasant or just kind of be in your own headspace, to be more reserved. Be conscious of how much you smile, the topics that you bring up, how much you reveal about yourself. And then finally, something to think about would be going to a support group for codependency because people, you you don't grow up in a household where you are the therapist for your caregivers. Uh, that it doesn't affect you in some way. Um, and as you, it, I'm sure many of you have heard me say on the podcast a thousand times, uh, support groups and therapy, man. Support groups and therapy. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this was filled out by Daija. I think I'm pronouncing uh, her name right. About her depression, laying at the bottom of the ocean, staring at the surface, slowly running out of oxygen. That's a good one. About her anxiety, a thousand tiny bugs crawling in multiple directions on my body. That one's just plain sexy. (laughs) There is somebody somewhere where they're like, oh yeah, that's my thing. (laughs) That's my jam. Uh, About bulimia, having a hole in your stomach. And PTSD, repeating a movie you don't like. Those are so good. Thank you for those. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, Cerebral. I have... uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, this last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. She helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that uh, that I can do, and uh, and I felt a sense of relief. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. And then uh, finally, this is from the Fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Angry Inner Crybaby. Share something you fear. Uh, She writes, I fear being found out as a fraud. I fear being told I'm useless. I don't matter. I fear I've been living my life in ignorance of how others really see me. I fear that although I've never had any rumors get back to me about people talking poorly about me, everyone I know from my best friends to my colleagues to acquaintances in my town think I'm a fucking idiot, flighty, unqualified, a terrible parent, a fuck-up, a snob, a control freak, a loser, a stupid idiot, a two-faced, stuck-up bitch, a wannabe, an insignificant blip on the social radar, a person not worth getting to know, an equivocating brown noser, a snob with absolutely no basis for thinking she's better than others. When I'm really feeling low, I'm afraid I am a narcissist, an abuser, an alcoholic, a selfish, arrogant know-it-all with uh, know-it-all who actually knows nothing. I'm afraid of being accused of something I didn't do. I'm afraid of being accused and prosecuted for something I did do. I'm afraid of bringing shame to my family. I'm afraid of failing at my job. I'm afraid of succeeding at my job. I'm afraid I'm not a good stepmother to my grown son. I'm afraid my codependent pathology has kept my daughter from learning how to take care of herself. I'm afraid my decisions about her life, where she went to school, what I've allowed her to eat, exposing her to my and my husband's dysfunctional families, have screwed her up and that she'll never find peace and happiness. I'm afraid I'm insignificant. I'm afraid I will never reach my full potential because I will fuck up every time success is in sight. I'm afraid I'll die without ever having ridden a scooter in the Italian countryside or eaten a croissant from a bakery in France or seen the Rocky Mountains or swum in the Caribbean. I'm afraid I'm living someone else's life 
an inferior life, a cheap imitation, a shadow life, that any joy I feel is fake, that any love I feel is just the tip of the iceberg, and I'll never experience the depths of feeling that others do because I'm holding myself back. I'm afraid that I'm wrong about everything. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal in dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with Ashley Stahl, who is a... It, it seems limiting to say author, life coach. Um, you're, I'm going to ask Ashley to read from her book, which is called U-Turn. Uh, and it's about, um, it's about many, many things. Uh, but the kind of overall mm-hmm. thing is about finding the career that fits who you are. Yes. And so much of the book is how can you discover who you are? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is so much packed in the book, and there are kind of assignments or worksheets, kind of that people can go through. And what I really like is that you integrate your stories, and you've got some nice shit shows, young I know, lady. It's been a wild time, <laughs> but but isn't that what makes it such a yeah. such a good book? Is that it's not like oh, I grew up and I was the princess, and then I yeah. moved to this, and this all worked out, and why don't you be like me? Yeah. I, I love that you also asked me to get started in reading some of it. I've never been asked that on a podcast, yeah. but it feels like the direct, most direct way for me to share who I am yeah. and to support people just through these words because they were so intentionally, carefully, slowly placed on the page mm-hmm. um, over time. And, you know, the first chapter, it's called Don't Do What You Love, Do What You Are. Which I was like, hold on, I got to think about that for a second, because I'd always just thought the the former. Yeah. It had never occurred to me to go, well, what's the difference between what I love and who I am? Yeah. Well, you know, there's this really interesting tool on Google called the Ngram, like the, uh, the letter N. And what it essentially does is it tracks phrases uh, on Google over time. So if you see the phrase, follow your passion in the Google Ngram, you see it kind of skyrockets from the 1980s and it flies up into the millennium. So essentially what happened with that piece of advice is that someone said it, it felt good, it resonated and it it went viral and it became a part of culture, which is what happened. Isn't Google a reflection of our culture? It's what we're thinking about, what we're talking about. So I think the millennial generation, especially, the, you know, coming out of a recession and having optimism in your career. And I mean, no matter what your age, no matter what season you are of your career, I wrote this book for, for anyone who's self-reflecting. But I think the advice of follow your passion got so many of us so lost. And that was the number one reason I wanted to write this book. It felt like a transmission, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's yeah. read. Let's read. Okay. And you just Let tell me, me to... 
to stop whenever. Chapter one, don't do what you love, do what you are. October 1st, 2011. Deep down, I knew it was coming because I couldn't shake the feeling of being out of sync with myself, with my life, with everything. It was as if everything felt like an itchy sweater. Have you ever felt like that? Not the sweater, but that feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. What I didn't realize at the time was that I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it, rather than feeding it with a constant flow of resistance. What you resist gets louder. I found that out the hard way. I knew my life needed to change, but I wasn't sure how it would happen or if I even wanted to face it. It wasn't until I found myself holding a loaded 45 caliber handgun that the it finally happened. It wasn't a dream or some runaway fantasy of a better life either. It was an awareness, a newfound realization that my life was about to change forever. And like a seed that eventually has no choice to, but to burst open and turn into a flower, my moment came. With that pistol in my hand, I had no choice but to grow. One of the biggest U-turns I've ever made was in my career. The year was 2011 and I was 24 years old. Being a young person in the workforce, I constantly found myself questioning what society would tell me, that I'd have to start my career out fetching coffee, work my way up the ladder, or take jobs for no other reason than to get my foot in the door. I yearned for more. Something in my heart told me that I could just work hard and grow quickly in my career. I lived in that mindset of possibility despite the results I saw in front of me, trusting that perhaps there was more. Then one day, there was. Just weeks after leaving my job as an administrative assistant in Los Angeles making minimum wage, I became the shiny new supervisor for a coveted training program at the Pentagon. I went from an assistant at an advertising agency in L.A., to being in charge of a high-level training curriculum, preparing seasoned U.S. government civilian workers for risky new assignments in Afghanistan. I'd stepped into a rare opportunity to start my career in a management role, and I couldn't believe that I'd network my way into this job. I was excited to learn from senior staff who could mentor me. Rumor on the street was that job, this job was previously filled by a slew of smart senior military officials who weren't good fits for it. In fact, the last person in my role had been a 65-year-old colonel. Why didn't they work out in the position? Because the military taught them to delegate to a large team, and while they did it brilliantly, this job required someone who was alert, energized, and hungry to do the work herself. In a military world committed to ranking order and climbing the ladder, I somehow became the exception to the rule. Knowing I wouldn't have to work my way up, I was giddy at the thought of stepping into leadership at such a young age. I was also scared shitless and unsure whether this was even my path. In fact, I was unsure of who I really was at the time. My first day on the job started oddly, to say the least. One of my colleagues led me down a gray hallway. As I followed this guy walking in front of me, all I heard was the out-of-place sound of clickety-clack from my high heels echoing across the concrete floor. There wasn't any kind of small talk or even a, hey, congrats on the new job or welcome to the team. I wasn't sure if it was his choice to show dominance or the fact that I was just a woman in a man's military world, but there he was, three steps ahead, leading me down the halls of the Pentagon, as if I were a lost puppy trying to find a home. I had a fake smile plastered on my face, but beneath it was worry, panic, and an extraordinary fear of failure. 
Do you ever smile at people at work when you're actually petrified? (laughs) (laughs) My escort was the head of the Republican club at his college in the Northeast, played on the varsity golf team, and served as former White House intern for the Bush administration. I would later find out that he was also getting $17,000 a year more than I was for doing the exact same job. The realization was painful, and it left me wondering what I possibly could have done better to advocate for myself. Have you ever found out someone's getting paid more than you for the same job? It's painful. I looked around the room, and I realized there were no windows. My fancy new job, the one I'd worked so hard to get, began inside a bunker-style basement. It was exactly how it sounds, cold floors, battleship gray walls, and no windows or heat to speak of. Welcome to government work, I thought to myself as I adjusted my coat to fend off the chilly air wafting through the room. It was the middle of December in Washington, D.C., and there wasn't a jacket in the world that could save me. In fact, I wore one coat every day that friends lovingly referred to as the sleeping bag. (laughs) Should I keep going? Yeah, I just want you to, uh, yeah, just a little bit. A little bit more. I was shown to a large desk in the far corner of the basement, also known as my new office. Don't get me wrong, I was grateful for the opportunity. To be 24 years old, making nearly six figures in a management job, that blew my mind, and working for the Pentagon, no less. More on that U-turn later. Nonetheless, I was still totally thrown off as I looked down at the red glow of the space heater clearly struggling to do its job against the cold leaking through the walls. I said to myself, I'm a sweater girl. I can work with this. As long as my feet are warm, I can bundle up and make it work. Next, the guy turned around and said, so this is my desk and over there, that's yours. I turned and I saw an isolated chair in the opposite corner. There was no desk, no table, just a chair. I smiled and I thought, is this some sort of joke? I even wondered if my new colleagues had a dark sense of humor pulling me into some sort of welcome prank, but the guy didn't even blink. Where's my desk? I turned around, offering a curious smile. His response made my lungs pop like little balloons. This is just like Afghanistan. Girls come second to men, he said, finally looking in my direction, and through his smirk he continued, one day we'll give you a desk, but you're going to have to earn it first. I remember thinking to myself, is this guy stuck in the 1800s? How am I supposed to write pages upon pages of intelligence reports if I can't put my laptop on a desk? And I wish I could tell you that I stood up for myself and called Cheryl Sandberg, Susan B. Anthony, and Gloria Steinem to organize a feminist march with me in the basement, or that at least I commented on his sexism and reported him to HR, but I didn't. Instead, I just went to the bathroom and cried. And of course, I I wept quietly, silencing my whimpers with paper towels because, hey... I was rolling with the military now, and there wasn't space for me to complain. I wasn't aware of how low my confidence was, despite being someone friends knew to stand up for a cause. I had a master's degree from King's College London, a top foreign affairs graduate program worldwide, and a triple major in government, history, and French, which represented years of study, achieving fluency in French, and producing a dissertation on Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. All for what? To deal with unequal pay while working out of a dungeon in the dead of winter? Really? After three days of balancing my laptop on my knees in my single chair, I found an empty two-door filing cabinet gathering dust in a strange closet down the hall. It wasn't a desk, but I made it work. After a couple of weeks working alongside Mr. Misogyny and living in my single chair existence, I was saved by an angel. 
And then there's this uh, new section called Discover Your Core Nature of the book. You, you can um, just talk about the, the, the woman. The Jeanette. The, yeah, Jeanette. Yeah, so she ended up being this, like, soulful, mother-like figure for me. And I had moved to D.C. I didn't really know anyone. And she came up to me in in the Pentagon and, you know, she had she was from Louisiana. She had a son who was a Marine stationed in D.C. And she just wanted to be near him. And I, I think she was the type where any job she would have been willing to do just to be near him. And she was like this comfort for everyone in the Pentagon, especially – I don't know anyone who remembers the war on terror kind of being the headlines of the news all the time. All the time. It, we were really in like a reactive fear-based society. And, and for some reasons, rightfully so. And for others, it just became kind of like an infection amongst all of us. So I think being in an environment like the Pentagon, having a woman like Jeanette, she ended up um, looking at me saying, why don't you have a desk? And I told her nobody's given me one. And she pushed space around in the main office and made room for me. And I never forgot her. And she would bake goods and just be this comfort in this otherwise really masculine energy space. And I don't say masculine from a gender standpoint, although it was more of a male-dominated mm -hmm. environment, of course. But just masculine as far as there's a lot of doing energy, there's a lot of fear energy, there's a lot of urgency all the time. You know, in the military, they say hurry up and wait. Yeah. Um, so our, a lot of nervous systems, I think we're on heightened, you know, stances in the Pentagon. And I, at that time in particular, it felt like you were the line of defense against a world that wanted us wiped off the map. And we had no sense of how big that threat was, yeah. where that threat was, and whether or not these wars that we had started were going to work. You know what's so interesting looking back on that time? And I'm, I'm not a very political person, ironically. I think the more I got into politics, the less I realized I knew because it's just so complex. And even when you're you know, voting in an election, it's like whoever gets chosen as president, they get served so many top secret papers that could ser seriously ch change the way they're making decisions in office, um, despite making campaign promises, right? So it's, right. it's an interesting world. But I remember in 2010, getting trained a lot by the FBI, and they would say to me, the number one security threat is not um, Islamic extremism, or whatever the public was most um, focused on in the news, but it was neo- neo-Nazis and white supremacists at the time. They were saying this is the biggest security threat. We have more incidences of, um, you know, neo-Nazis in America. So it's interesting now after looking at what happened, you know, January 6th in the Capitol, mm. um, you know, over a year ago, it, it really shows how much has, or two years ago now, uh, how much has changed yeah. and um, how much we are putting a spotlight on on the environment, but but definitely yes. at the time. And and one thing I learned was there's a lot of heroes in our government that don't get credit for what they're doing. They're not doing mm -hmm. it for the credit. And there's so many attacks and things that could have happened that didn't because of these secret soldiers, you know, mm -hmm. that devote their life to doing their best. Did you ever meet the, the woman that Jessica Chastain played in Zero Dark Thirty? I met a lot of Jessicas. You yeah. know, a lot of Jessica Jastains, um in Zero Dark Thirty. Um, I didn't meet anyone who told me they were directly responsible for um, capturing Osama bin Laden. I did meet the team that was involved in Argo because I was at the Pentagon during the, um, where was it, the Kenya, the attacks in Nairobi in mm. the mall. Yeah. So there were a lot of people that were flying in straight from those attacks and 
um, pretending that they were dead on the floor of the mall to not get shot again. Right. Um, and, it, you know, it feels like now we're in such a different era with different fears dealing with a pandemic. It's almost like an invisible enemy. Mm-hmm. Our um, own citizenry. Our own citizenry. Um, but I'm really grateful for that time because it taught me, you know, I never would have thought I'd start a business as like a career expert or lately I've been coaching TED speakers on how to talk and their, write their speech. It's, it's been interesting. I never would have thought this for myself then. But ultimately what you learn as a spy, as an intelligence worker is communication and the art of communication, for lack of a better term, sometimes in a manipulative way. And I think that's why ultimately I had to leave national security was because I am a sensitive soul. And I think a lot of people are. And we don't learn what we want in our career until we try things on. It's like the pressure we get at a young age to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, how do you know what you want to be without trying things on? Life is really an experiment. and It it, it is. And most of it is shedding. Yeah. Shedding layers. And, And if you think about what we're experiencing, I think, socially in our careers, it's almost the equivalent of our mom saying to us in preschool, like, Whoever you have a crush on, your first crush, marry them. You know, that's what we're doing in our career. It's like the first thing you think maybe you'll like, build a whole thing off of it, spend a lot of money on it, and don't be wrong and don't misstep because then it's going to be embarrassing and people are going to watch you and you can't make money or survive. You know, it's the amount of fear that we we get in our systems and our careers. Will will you really tackle fear and uh, fear and authenticity? I mean, if there's if there's two kind of themes uh, I feel that run through your book is you encouraging people to get in touch with the difference between passion and fear mm-hmm. and understand really assessing what are your strengths yeah um, to, to what are your values so that then you can make a more educated decision on where you want to go and I also like that, that you talk about self-love and and to not think of quote unquote, missteps as mistakes, but uh, rather things that kind of had to happen for you to understand what does fit. When people think that that kind of thinking is like trying to be an optimist, you know, like, you know, when a bird shits on your head and people are like, oh, you're lucky, you know, it's like we have these weird social things to make ourselves feel better. And, uh, you know, Ultimately, it's everything has a cost of admission, whether it feels small or large. And I think the cost of admission to happiness and fulfillment is trial and error. And if someone is going to see trial and error like time lost or sunken cost, um, they're missing what's available in life because life is short, but it's also quite long. You know, so unless you're in your late 70s, you've got a lot of time left in your career, maybe a decade, maybe more. And to me, Stepping back doesn't always have to mean stepping down, you know, Mm -hmm. it can just mean trying again and and really taking everything you've learned from the past and and bringing it into the future. And and what you're saying about fear and authenticity, I think one of the keys for that is intuition. Mm -hmm. And we live in an era right now where being an extrovert is favored in the workplace, but introverts have a lot to offer, obviously, And, and half the workforce is introverts. Um, and we live in a time where it values intellect over intuition because you can't see or prove intuition 
given despite the fact that we have 200 million neurons in our gut and it's the size of a cat or dog's brain you know it's, it's quite intelligent when our stomach sinks or when we feel pulled towards something um moved towards something or um i think there's so much going on in our guts that we're not attuned to oh, i couldn't agree more and we had uh, dr will cole on uh he would I be good that. good good guest for for your podcast and yeah. he talks about the brain gut connection i have yeah. to have you on there i have to have him on there i actually nice. you're so intuitive i just told my team two days ago you got to get will cole on the show oh that's hilarious yeah that, yeah um so what did she say to you that was such a, a powerful moment in the in the book when jeanette yeah when yeah so Throughout the U-turn book, which it's Y-O-U-turn because I feel like it's different to come back to yourself versus make a U-turn in traffic and go the other way you came from, which is like a pendulum swinging and we're equally lost. Jeanette was someone who introduced me to this concept I would come up with later as a career expert, which I like to call your core nature. Um, I remember you know, having so much insecurity there, especially because if you're a civilian and you're not from the military working in the Pentagon, they kind of scoff at your resume. Like, what do you know? You've never been out in the field. I just had a master's degree in a few languages that I'd learned, which for me as an everyday woman in her early 20s, I was proud of. But there it's like, you know, an everyday person who hasn't been in the field. And she said to me, girl, you know, you don't even know what you're bringing here. Every day you come in, you're communicative, you're joyful, you're wise. You've got this depth and this boldness to you that everyone is drawn to. It really makes it lighter in here. People like to come to work. I bet you people, she even went on and said, I bet you some people stay in their job because they sit next to you and you really make their day better. And I just remember thinking, wow, what adjectives to describe me? And she helped my self-esteem. And how much, how much of that information was new to you? You know, people tell you things, but it's different when people see you in a professional capacity. You know, you can be told all day from your friends or even your parents, right? Like, you're so bold, you're so funny. But when somebody watches you in a career setting, in a professional setting, and they can, especially if it's someone who's higher on the totem pole than you in some way, you know, and I say higher, not from a ego standpoint, but from a org chart standpoint. Sure. So. Gracie, <laughs> I forgot to close the shutters. Let me go close it. <laughs> Nobody has told her that she's not the police person of the uh, neighborhood. Yeah, as far as being seen by somebody in your work and getting feedback from them, it just hits differently. And for me... Every- I think especially when it's somebody older than you. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I had to manage a lot of people who were older than me. And most of the time it went really well. Because I practiced a lot of deference. And I recommend that for anyone who is in any sort of age gap situation is understanding that someone younger than you is going to have an understanding you don't have. And someone who's a lot older than you is going to have an understanding you don't have. And if you can see that as an asset and practice deference with them, you can go so much further. So for me, really hearing her feedback and treasuring it got me thinking, wow, there's something to be said about how the room, and that's what she said to me. She said, the room changes when you walk in. And I realized with everyone, the room changes when everyone walks in. Um, Everyone carries their own frequency. It's quantum physics. There's science behind the idea of energy. A room is different when someone else enters it and they carry with them something different. Um, Not even to go too woo-woo, but what's coming up for me is just, I think about auras a little bit sometimes, and I don't always dive into those, but um, I think, why is it that sometimes I was living in New York City for two years? 
I leave my place, I'm in an amazing mood. And then I come home and I'm not in a good mood. And, it, and I'm a pretty happy person. I'm not a very moody person. But sometimes it happens and there's no reason, right? I'm like, why do I feel so bad all of a sudden? And I almost think it's like picking up someone's energy. Like I'm on the subway and somebody next to me is really upset and I just pick that up. Mm-hmm. So really taking stock of how does the room change when you walk in and starting to ask people, how does the room change when I walk in? Um, asking people in a personal capacity, but asking them in a professional capacity. to start Right, because you don't know what the room's like when yeah. you're not in there. Yeah. And unless like, somebody tells you. Exactly. And there's a lot of research to prove that, um, that people can see you better than you can see you in some oh, ways. absolutely agree. Yes. I've, I've been behind people in line for coffee where you feel like you know more about them, at least how the the kind of vibe that they give off yeah. than, than they understand and vice versa. I've had people say things to me. I had no idea when I was younger. Somebody said to me, you're so, um, regarding my sense of humor, you're so hostile. Mm. And I thought I was the mellowest person in the world, but no I had no idea that there was a layer of anger mm. underneath my quote unquote comedy that it would take me a decade wow. in therapy to discover. But go ahead, you wow, were Wow, what you feedback, were but what a yeah. gem. And that's the thing is feedback can feel so vulnerable and so scary. So I think going on the journey to figure yourself out and bring who you actually are into your career, because I think when people are not happy in what they do, it's for usually one of two reasons. It's the what or the how. And something I didn't write about in the book that's a third reason is your the energy levels of somebody. So the what to me is your core skill set. If you're operating outside of your zone of genius most of the day, you're probably not going to be happy because you're pushing a river. Like it's exhausting to be someone else, you know? Um, I do speaking tours. And what is, isn't speaking like the number one fear be, mm-hmm. before death or something yes. wild like that? So I can't imagine somebody doing what I do if that's not their thing. It's yeah. exhaust. I mean, even for me, um, having 4,000 eyeballs on me can be really terrifying. And I've had to learn to regulate my nervous system. But being someone else all day, that's going to make you really unhappy. I think the second piece is the how, meaning how you work. So, you know, your core values, what's important to you. Let's let's pause there because I want to dive into uh, the six, is it six or seven core? Ten. Skill? There's ten, ten core skill sets. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the what which is your core skill set. Okay. Your talk zone talk about those different ones. Yeah. So, um, uh, well, this is going to be a good test to see if I remember my own body of work, but I think I will. You got the book right there. I got the so book there, but I'm to. almost like ready for the challenge. I'm like, do it's- I? Okay. So what I found after 12 years of, you know, launching courses on how to figure out who you are, having a podcast, surveying my email list, doing all this work, um, is that there's largely 10... And even now, I'm continuing with this body of work, starting to see, is it 10, 11, 12? But in the book, I identify 10 core skill sets that I think exist in the workforce, whether you're a job seeker or an entrepreneur. And the first one is an innovator. So that's for the creative self-starter or the visionary. It's the entrepreneur or the intrapreneur. So the entrepreneur and the difference between them and the entrepreneur is their relationship to freedom and creativity. So the entrepreneur needs all out freedom, like it needs to be their idea, and it needs to be on their terms, and they feel a greater pain, um, you know, not pursuing their idea, than they do pursuing it and facing risk. So they're willing to go into the risk. Um, The entrepreneur... And and that would be you? Yeah, that's definitely me. Okay. 
And words was one, right? Yeah, words was another core skill set. And the thing about words, though, is that's my primary skill set. And what people need to see as I go through these skill sets is some people ask me, and this has been really huge with my body of work that I don't know if I fully addressed in the book, is when you look at a core skill set like words, it's easy to say, okay, well, what skill sets use the energy of words, business development, sales, talent agents, you know, even real estate people. But it's not about this is my skill and these are the job titles that associate it with it. It's this is my skill and here's some job titles or businesses that lead with this skill. But you can have a different skill set and have the same job title as someone else. For example, take a therapist. There's a lot of psychologists that their core skill set is going to be words. How they transform, how they heal people is going to be through the art of communication. But there's some therapists who their core skill set is not words. It's an, it's an analytical. It's analysis. Um, and this is the mistake I actually make going into the Pentagon. I thought to myself, I'm going to write a lot of intelligence reports, and I love writing, and I'm a words person. I didn't know it fully at the time that that's how I could categorize myself. But I remember thinking, I love writing. But what was I doing? I was analyzing. Writing intelligence reports is the opposite side of the brain than the side I'm using as a creative writer. Left brain versus right brain, it's, it's completely Because you're not different. coming up with anything other no. than the phrasing of Phrasing, and I'm looking for patterns, which is highly analytical. Like, that's what intelligence is, is right. noticing patterns and seeing a pattern interrupt and looking into it. So I think there's brilliant therapists and psychologists who their zone of genius is analysis. And they're going to be able to look at you or I and say, hey, did you notice that you have a pattern of doing this? And beneath that pattern is an entire belief system that's keeping you from doing this. And beneath that belief system is an entire way of being that you learned as a kid that you need to explore, that you need to uncover, that you need to look at so that you can choose it or you can choose otherwise. So I think really understanding that, you know, a business development person Probably their main skill set is words because you need to use your words to turn it into money, to turn it into opportunity. You And it's not using in a transactional way. It's it's harnessing. It's leveraging. Right. Right. So we've got entrepreneur, entrepreneur, which is under innovation, the innovator. We've got words. We've got service. Um, one thing that's really important in this book to recognize is around whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. And I understand a lot of people are an ambivert. So it's really identifying which one do you lean towards because how you express your skill set is going to be highly different based on that. So if you're an introvert, your skill set is going to be very internal, of course, right? So I'm actually more introverted than extroverted. I'm an ambivert. But when it comes to my work, I love to be alone with my laptop and in my thoughts. And that's why I feel more like I'm an author that happens to have a business. I'm a writer that happens to have a business right. versus an entrepreneur that happened to write a book. And I think a lot of people in our community, they write books to further their business. My business was my tool to get to the thing I've always wanted to do was to write my book. So I think, you know, being the introvert I am was really important. If I'm an extrovert, I'm going to be on speaking tours all the time, which I'm not because after I give a keynote, I'm in bed for a day because I'm exhausted. Right. I'm taking, I love yeah. doing it and I'm exhausted. I also find that introverts tend to um, uh, be paired more with an analytical mind because they're often kind of in the shadows observing, whereas the extrovert is, is often the one kind of at the at the center uh, of attention or kind of um, uh, more initiating uh, action than viewing yeah. action. Yeah, I love that you're saying that because it's almost unspoken, but it is largely the case. And I wonder what the research is behind the, the connection of being introverted and being analytical. 
Um, I haven't seen the research, but it does feel like the case. Um, and I would say that kind of goes to that third thing I didn't fully write about in the book, which is energy levels. And that can mean many things. It can mean introvert versus extrovert. It can also be very physical. Um, one piece of research I find really interesting um, by Michael Bruce, I believe is his name, Dr. Michael Bruce. He talks about um, how being a morning person is genetic. And it just Thank shows God. you. How Thank God that, that, <laughs> that yeah. somebody found that because I think for so many of us late risers. There's like a shame to it. There's a shame to it. And there's a feeling that the world is passing you by. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I totally can write my book from my best hours for work when I was writing were 3 p.m. to like 10 p.m. Um, and so it's like, why, why are we living? So just understanding that has to do with energy levels, right? Like don't join the 5am club if you are genetically and 23 and me, I'm pretty sure it has a, uh, a wake up time in your, really? in your DNA. And I think mine was like 803am or something. That's and that's on a good day. So yeah. I just feel like your energy levels are not just about your body on a physical level and when you work best, when you're optimal. It's also about your diet. I have a lot of food sensitivities that other people don't have. Um, and it's also about, in my case, um, I got bit by a tick, I think 15 years ago, that had Lyme. And luckily, I didn't have any symptoms, except I got sick very often. And I remember in college thinking to myself, you know, I better... I better work for myself one day because I can't take three weeks off or four weeks off at a time. And I was getting like a really bad cold and losing my voice, bronchitis, you know, three times a year. I was out for three months of the year. And I just, wow, that's energy level. So it's not about becoming a, a victim of what we face or identifying so much with our the things that might feel like they set us back. I never looked at my Lyme and said, this is me. And for some people, it's very real. It's like their body is being taken over. Yeah, when it dominates your every waking hour, how can you not mistake it as part of you? Because, I mean, physically, at least it is at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about the way I always saw it was like, I'm Ashley and this Lyme is visiting me however long it does. And it's this entity that I need to make friends with and accept because if I don't listen to it, it's going to get more aggressive towards me. So we got to work together. I feel the same way about depression. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, But go ahead. Yeah. And I think that, you know, my Lyme wasn't something that I ever spoke about or thought about very much, but it was something that I quietly knew was impacting my energy levels. And for that reason, to this day, and I know there's a lot of privilege to saying this, I've built a business where I work two to three hours a day. Um, And it's not because I can't work more, but, and I'm very capable of working a lot. Um, But unless there's something that's like putting a fire under my heart, and I'm like, so alive about it, which this book was absolutely that case. um, I don't I don't do it anymore, because I just honor my I know my body's a little more sensitive. And so I think that's important for people to realize. I'm so glad you said that because I think it's like the waking up late shame. Um, I don't think a day goes by that I don't tell myself I didn't work hard enough. Right. And some days, 
it might objectively be true. But, but do you who came up with this that we need to work at all? Like, look at the era of like cavemen. It's like the work was like getting a snack and being in a village and the era of I'm not even monogamy. Like nobody knew whose kids was whose in the village. It was just like people raising kids, people getting food and people being in community. So it's like who, where how did we evolve to this norm of this 40 hour work week? And I think that there's some decades that happen in years. And then there's some years and years and years and decades that go by for something to happen. And I think in the case of COVID, we saw... You mean globally. Globally. Yeah. And I think in the case of the pandemic, it expedited something that may have taken decades to happen in just years. Um, and so now we live in a world where there's options in your work arrangement. And I think your work arrangement also has a lot to do with your energy, which ties into your core skill set. I, I really see it like a layer cake. Like the bottom foundation is the what. Like what are you going to do all day? Because your tasks have to do with your mind, your body, your heart. You can be into fashion, but that's a backdrop. The foreground is like how are you using your energy? Are you talking? Are you quiet? Are you typing? Like what are you typing about? So it's really about asking yourself what is the tasks because that's your core skill set. And people ask me often after they read the 10 in my book, well, maybe I, do I have two? Do I have three? I resonate with a few of these. Yes, we're multifaceted beings. But it's about knowing which one you lead with. Because that's the one that is your zone of excellence. And you want to be contributing. Because, you know, I think in the workplace, people say, you know, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? And I think if we looked at the Google Ngram, this whole purpose thing would get really um, on wildfire. But to me... The word purpose is so divine, and I think we have a different purpose. It moves at different times in our lives. And so for me as a career expert, when I look at people that I've helped, whether it's in my private practice or companies or whoever, I just think work is the place you go to contribute. And contribution is subjective. What does contribution mean to you? What does it feel like to give? What feels like enough? Do you have some wounding from your upbringing that you are never doing enough? Then you have to look at that. But when you clean up your side of the street, when you look at your mindset, you look at your upbringing, and you really feel like you're in a place of neutrality with yourself, whatever that means, because it's hard to say there is such a thing as neutral. It's as close as you can get to that saying, what actually feels like contribution for me? Because someone came up with 40 hours a week, and it wasn't me. And it probably wasn't the person listening either. So to me, it's about who are you, what's your gift, and what's your energy levels? Are you introverted? Are you extroverted? Do you have any physical limits? And there's many different work structures that I'm so excited to be seeing right now. And I've been talking about these forever. Um, So I've had clients ever since the recession, like 2008, 2009, who have been applying this. But millennials started the trend of poly work. To keep the lights on. Polywork meaning taking on multiple part-time jobs. The gig economy. Yeah, the gig economy. But they were doing it because they just couldn't afford their student loans as a generation. I'm seeing Gen Z doing polywork to express themselves. It's been different. They're taking on multiple jobs to say, hey, I'm I'm interested in the film industry, but I don't know what my core skill set is yet in it. So I'm going to try script editing. I'm going to try production. And I'm going to make this part-time quilt of options and i'm going to hone in and that's a really cool way to calibrate with the universe and figure out what is your gift it's a very fast way too to say hey i'm going to take on three 10-hour jobs a week um and you're flexible and it could also cater to the sleeping in person the freelancer um working remote these structures are so important to to realize and i think that 
America especially had a collective mindset that part-time jobs was for some reason this thing that didn't fit on a company's plate and not as interesting or intriguing. Mm -hmm. But the truth about part-time jobs is like there's a lot of really interesting part-time work, very much so in the, you know, zone of what you want to be doing that are simply, you know, a company looking in the mirror and saying, okay, we really need this highly creative, highly interesting role, but we don't have the funds or need for it 40 hours a week all year. We need it 15 hours a week. We definitely need this. Right. And it's so stable and so awesome. And I mean, I can question the idea of stability all day long and what does stability even mean? But um, I think it's really powerful for people to actually give themselves permission to look at these layers of the cake. The first one being your skill set. The second one being your energy levels. Um, the third one being your, your values. What do you value? Talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I had the most interesting uh, client recently. She was a lawyer. And, um, you know, it was really nice to have her because I hadn't career coached in a while. I was helping so many speakers. And she comes in and she's like, I really feel like I'm meant to be a lawyer, but I hate it. And I'm like, okay, let's look at this. Let's look at your core skill set. Let's look at the bottom of the cake, what's holding this whole thing up. And we looked at her and I was like, yeah, words is your skill set. Like you are meant to be expressing. And she was, she was, she came from a, when we looked at her, I was like, okay, now we know your skills. We, we looked at the other ones. It, she really led with words. Okay, are you introverted? Are you extrovert? She's an extrovert. She wants to be in front of a court. You know, she wants to be fighting. She has it in her. But it was like, okay, well, what are your values? And all of those also added up to be an attorney. She values impact. She values justice. Um, but then we looked at um, what else does she value? And balance came up. And what was the type of law she was doing? Mergers and acquisitions. I'm like, all right, the legal field is a pie, just like any field. The government is a pie. You know, finance is a pie. It has many slices, each one. And she was just eating the wrong slice of the pie. You know, she was in mergers and acquisitions. Those, that field is the field of, of that niche is the no balance niche of law. That's the niche of there's a deal alive and you're up until four in the morning falling asleep at your desk. And you need to accept that that's the class of admission. And everything is life and death and yeah. immediate. Immediate. And you're often dealing with people, um, I imagine, mm -hmm. who have very little tact mm -hmm. and are you know, maybe verbally abusive. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of the workforce, unfortunately, is, which yes. is like heartbreaking. Um, and we saw the research, you know, 50% of people who leave their job, they don't leave because they're saying, oh, I'm not growing in this job or this is the wrong job for me. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of people who do for that reason, but 50% are leaving because they just don't like their boss. So the most expensive issue that companies are facing today is uh, bosses that can't regulate themselves emotionally and manage and lead. Um yeah, I mean, I could go on and on forever. But as far as the core values go, looking at this balance one, here was the next piece was saying, well, what does balance mean to you? Because I had a client, this man who um, I believe he was a doctor. And he said adventure was a core value. I'm like, all right, what is adventure? And he's like skydiving. He was one of those adrenaline seekers in sport, you know, athletic types. Um, and then I had another client, this admin assistant at a cosmetics brand. And her core value was adventure. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, trying new restaurants in Miami. I'm like, all right, you know, to each their own. And I think this applies in romantic relationships and friendships too, is, oh, we both value religion or spiritual. Well, what does that look like? Are you going to church every day? Or is it like, you just feel like there's a higher power? I mean, there's just so much to core value. So right. in her case, she said, well, balance means um, that I'm home and I have time every night 
to exercise and be with my daughter. And I'm like, well, you're in the wrong slice of the pie. But maybe you still are meant to be a lawyer. So there was a moment in time where she had to kind of step back and restart her legal career. And ever since then, she's been in family law. Um, She's been, you know, doing a lot of advocating for children in the courts. And she's the happiest she's ever been. And so it's really sometimes a core values issue. And it's about anyone listening. If you don't feel satisfied saying, are my energy levels being trespassed on? Like, am I not well enough? And and not from a place of not being well. It's just your wellness has a capacity. And this is beyond your capacity and honoring your capacity. And and again, goes back to shedding. Shedding the idea that I should be able to work a 90-hour week and get to the gym and do this and and do that. Yes. It's just not healthy for so many. And it it, it breaks my heart that people are putting this kind of pressure on themselves. No wonder we have a a burnout issue. I mean, it's it was so funny for me. Um, I'm a spokesperson for SoFi, and you know they have me go on the news sometimes, and it's like so silly to me. Like these journalists are like, you know, the Great Resignation. What's happening? And it's like, well, this is this is math. You have a workforce that's tired because they don't know who they are because we were never taught how to figure out what our skills are. There's no class in that in college. And then we're pressured to pick a path and invest a lot of money into it. Um, back up one second. Yeah. I, know, I know of SoFi Stadium, but I don't know what SoFi is. Do you know I that's apologize. so common? It's a financial lending institution. And okay. the reason that they brought me on as a spokesperson the past few years was because they wanted to have someone who could help their members and just help their audience with self-actualization, fulfillment, and career. And so they're a really cool company because I've never I've never had a client so much so invest in just trying to be helpful. It's, mm-hmm. it's really cool to see. Um, and what they're doing in the, you know, consolidating debt, all these different things with their loans, their digital bank, they're doing incredible and things. And they're not predatory. I'm no. I'm just going to adjust your, your mic a little bit because, boy, <laughs> is that field littered with uh, yeah. pre- predatory it's so true, and they decline um, loans for people that they feel like um, it's not healthy for them to take a loan from them. Um, I mean, they're, they're just really incredible uh, company, and I've, I've really loved being with them. Um, I guess I'm someone who is multi-passionate, like probably a lot of listeners, um, who, who does a lot of things, who has a lot of facets. Right. And I think that's the truth of where we're headed, and that's why these structures like poly work or remote work or freelance or side hustle plus job, these things are all vehicles for us to express ourselves. And I think your career is an ultimate vehicle for self-actualization, self-expression. Um, but I think it's been mistaken far too often as our purpose and why we're here. And I don't think that's the case. Do you find – and I'm sure you do because I, if I remember correctly, there was something um, – in the book where you talk about letting essentially letting go of the results not becoming attached yeah. to the to the outcome yeah. um talk about that and how someone who wants success can delineate um what they have control over and what they don't have control over maybe even i, I would love stories from your own life mm-hmm. that that you have experienced experienced as far as not as a coach but personally in changing careers yeah launching 
uh, a job. If not, yeah. you know, stories about clients. Yeah, no, I have well. so much. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a renaissance woman. I've actually been telling myself lately, I need to come up with a new term that represents that, but, but feels more modern of like the every woman, you know, mm-hmm. because I feel like all of us are everything. And it's almost like we're these walking rainbows and we pick one color to be in our career. And it's like food coloring. It's so strong. And it, it doesn't necessarily let us be the fullness of, of us. So when I was at the Pentagon... Gracie. Gracie. I don't know what she hears. The shutters are closed. She's got an imagination, you know. Yeah, she does. Um, She's a people person. Yeah. She's an expert. Well, you know what? Even before getting into that, I need to look on my uh, Audible right now because I was reading a book and I I feel like she would be so interesting for you to talk to. She wrote a book, um, and I'm going to say the author's name, about luck in decision making. She was a a very well-known poker player. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is when we make a decision, sometimes if we get a good result, we tell ourselves that was it's Annie Duke thinking in bets. Have you seen any of her? Work? I have not. So she basically, you know, she's a PhD. She, she talks about how when it comes to decision making, we think if it goes well, we made a good decision. That's what we ought to. And let's do more of that. But what we don't calculate is luck. And um, I don't know, especially in personal development, I think there's a lot of encouragement, which is a great thing. But sometimes there's some delusion of like, you did it once, you can do it again. It's like for entrepreneurs, sometimes the truth is you did it once and the market was a great fit for that at the time, but you can't do it again in this market or you can try to, but it's, it's not going to hit the same way. Right. right? There, there, there's a podcast. I think it's called How I Built This. Yeah. And I listened to like six episodes and I would say five of them. The entrepreneur, before they hit on the success, they had painful, painful failures, oh, almost yeah. resulting in bankruptcy. Yeah. But they took things away from that mm-hmm. that helped them ultimately avoid pitfalls in the business that did succeed. 100%. And, and I know that happened yeah. to you personally as yeah. well. And, well. and we'll get into that a little later in the podcast. Absolutely. And as far as making career pivots, um, I've made many. I just got certified as a meditation teacher for no reason recently, and I just signed up for an herbalism course to learn the fundamentals of how to like make teas and elixirs that are naturally help- helpful to people. But um, I don't do any of these with like a career goal in mind. I do them because I want to be the most interesting person to myself because I'm who I'm hanging out with most of the time. And I think when you pursue that sort of energy, that childlike wonder and curiosity with the world, um, you change. And I think we haven't let it be safe for us to change when that is the truth of the human experience. I've, I've got another uh, two guests for you to have on your podcast Please. to talk about that. Uh, they, they wrote a book called uh, Your Brain on Art. Oh, cool. And one of them is a uh, award-winning designer at Google. Wow. And the other one is a researcher on uh, on the brain. You would love them. Please yes, send them. I, I love researchers. I love yes. research and data. Yeah. Um, as far as my own pivots, the most important thing I think anyone can ask themselves when they're making a career change. First, there's the question of should I stay or should I go? Whether you own a business, you're in a job. And I know a lot of people are stuck with that. Um, my answer would be, are you using your core skill set? And are you sharpening it? Are you growing in your core skill set? If the answer is yes, the only reason I would say to go is if um, there's a core value being violated. Like I had coached a guy who um, he was in sales. Words was definitely a skill set. He was so geared towards it. It's a lot of words people we're talking about today. I've been so many different people that I've worked with numbers people, but, um, and he was in the right role for him, but he was advocating for a company that he felt in his heart was doing bad work in the world. And he had a core value of integrity. 
So he was in so much pain all the time. He felt so out of integrity. And yeah. it was just a visceral trespass on on what he values. And I think your core values are not, you know, what you want to be, but what you hold as a key ingredient. What's important to you. What's important to you. And and without one of those maybe five words, you're not you anymore. So if I'm not funny at all at a certain point, like if we're hanging out a few hours and like I'm not silly about something, I'm not me and a core value is gone. And and that's when you know like that's a part of who you are and it helps to ask feedback. Um, but if if you are sharpening your core skill set and growing, the only reason to go is if one of your values are being trespassed on, your energy isn't being honored and you're not well. Um, you have a toxic boss, really toxic. You've tried to do something about it. You can't. Doesn't give you a desk. Doesn't give you a desk, you know, makes more money than you. I don't know. But point being, um, it's important to honor that. Otherwise, I would say keep growing. And if you are ready to leave, then I think the core question, especially if you're making a pivot, is what is the responsibility that I took on from the past that required me to use my skills in a way that's highly relevant to the future. Um, you know, when I look back at my time in the Pentagon, let's say that I wanted to leave national security and intelligence analysis, and I wanted to be a PR person at a fashion company. What is PR about? If that was the direction I was going, it's about people, it's about relationships, it's about trust, it's about um, networking, networking, it's about resourcefulness. I would look at what I am doing now and say, where have I been about people? Where have I been about building trust? Where have I been resourceful? And you look at your responsibility. So I could look at all the things I was doing at the Pentagon and bring it back to that narrative of trust, networking, people. And then when you're communicating as you make your pivot to people who are relevant, you're able to say to them. Pitching yourself. Yeah, pitching yourself, um, which is something I talk a lot about in the book is your elevator pitch. Um, and I think there's a lot of long practice elevator pitches that maybe lack connection. You know, they don't hit. And I think it's about answering objections before people ask you about them or addressing them because they may never ask you about them. So a good elevator pitch is being able to paint that picture that might not make sense on paper, but you're doing your diligence, you're networking with people, and you're able to paint that story for them of this is what you're off what you're asking of me and this is something I'm actually super trained to do. I would also imagine that um in sticking to your authenticity, which kind of runs through your book, the importance, how that really kind of needs to be there and for you to be self-honest yeah. about you know, who you are or at least trying to move in the direction, listening to your body, dealing with your childhood and all that stuff, that you have to be willing to let go and accept rejection if you have put yourself out there they're authentically yeah. and it doesn't work out well that's the thing is the narrative that our mind holds with results it's like whenever i see someone who's hit a lot of failure and they've succeeded i mean there's so many stories you know the author of the harry potter series i mean the list can go on forever of the amount of people later in their life that after 100 rejections the one was the winner remembering all you need is one life is a numbers game um, how people see you has it, it's through their perceptual filter right um and how you relate to the issue is the issue like how you relate to how people are experiencing you that's not for you to hold right what other people think of us is none of our business it's none of our business it's what byron katie says right there's three types of business there's their business our business and god's business or whatever you believe in spiritually right. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's not, it's their business, what they think of you. And so I think people who have a lot of failure, what I notice within myself is I think, oh, well, they must have an amazing conversation going on in their head about failure. They must be able to handle that quite well and not make it mean anything about their, their path. Because they keep trying. Yeah. I had a, a client who raised a bunch of money and he had a, uh, he's an unusual person for me to help. I usually don't help people, you know, with a tech, tech entrepreneur raise money, but it just resonated what they were doing and they ended up getting so many no's. It's such a bad time to raise money as, as the, you know, with banks failing right now, it's accepted to be not such a great time. But I don't believe in not such a great time for anything because ultimately the world is a very big place and the, some of the worst downturns are the times of the most creativity. And so the truth of the matter is businesses are always starting. People are always hiring. Whether there's less or more, it's happening. Um, and so it's really about staying in touch with opportunities. If you feel stuck, the problem isn't your stuckness. It's the pro- the problem is that you haven't created enough options for yourself. And that means keep keep you know knocking on doors, letting your knuckles maybe bleed a little, you know, and uh, and keep going. How do you know when when it's time to wrap it up and say you know maybe this wasn't meant to be? Yeah. Or, or is there no answer to that? I think it's a personal thing, um, but it's almost like a romantic relationship. I think. People who break up with their partner in a really bad fight, usually I would say like that's not feedback for you that that's the time to go. I'm not a relationship expert. I'm just someone who's got a master's in psychology and done a lot of therapy. Um, But I would say the best time to leave your relationship is when you've had an amazing month with them and you can still look at them and say, hey, this was so great. And I still know in your in my heart, this isn't you're not my person. And I think that's, have you done that? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was with someone for five years, such a good guy, and um, I just knew he wasn't my person. He proposed. I said yes out of fear. Poor guy that I I did that in my early twenties, mid twenties. And uh, after a few months, I said, Hey, like I know in my heart, this isn't it. And I think the hardest hardest knows in our lives. They're almost a yes, you know? They're the ones oh. that are like almost it, but they're just not. And it's hard for someone like me, I think, sometimes to make a decision because the more in touch with yourself you get, the more you realize how multifaceted you are, the more you attune to your needs, the more happy you are because when you know what you need, you know what to ask for. And that's like the baseline for fulfillment, knowing what to ask for. I mean, if you don't know who you are, that's why it's hard to be fulfilled because yes. you say yes to things that you don't want to do. Yeah, You say no to things that maybe you actually do want, right. and you're just kind of stuck doing a bunch of stuff that isn't for you. And you're probably not listening to your body. Exactly. And you got to cut yourself off to stay where you are, which is why I think a lot of people stay in dynamic situations, be it a marriage in their career, you know, business partnership or whatever type of commitment that isn't true for them. And I am a woman of my commitments. Um, but I think the ultimate commitment is with yourself. And for me, having done so much self-actualization work, I've actually noticed it is harder for me to choose a life partner because I do have a lot of facets. Um, I do like to explore. Um, but what I've really come to be honest about with myself in my career, just like I would with a life partner, is what do I need? You know, what do I need? And who do I, where do I get that from? And remembering that 
almost never the thing that we need to be happy. It's it's almost never out there. We just think it is. Mm-hmm. People set goals because they think, oh, this is going to make me feel, I mean, I want to feel this way. And this is the goal that's going to do it. But the truth is, it's like, no, like, this is why we see celebrities like Britney Spears, you know, shaving her head and, and just at the height of her success. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think a lot of people get to the there, whatever the there is, and they don't feel the feeling that they thought they were going to feel. I hear that time and time, 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 and again. time again. Yeah. And it's like it, it causes a breakdown because you just put your whole pour your whole life and all your time, which is the most precious asset we have that we can't replace into this thing that it doesn't exist. So I think the sooner we can all get hip to fulfillment is an inside job. Figure out who you are. Figure out what you need. Figure out how you feel. And understand the difference between what you're looking someone to give you emotionally and what is your responsibility to give that to yourself first. Because, boy, is is that a recipe for disaster, unfulfillment, drama, you know, whatever you want to call it. But not understanding what is our emotional responsibility and what would be nice to have in a partner yeah. um, is, or what our baseline needs are in a relationship. What is um, a deal breaker? You know, if that person isn't willing to have an, uh, you know, a vulnerable conversation with you, that, you know, that is, is while yes, you should be working on the act of being vulnerable on your own. That is certainly a baseline yeah. right size need to, have a partner that can have moments of vulnerability and transparency. Yes. Yes. And I think the key for all of this is being committed to yourself and being willing to grow. And I think that is in all areas. So when it comes to your career, it's just a place, it's just a jungle gym. It's just a, it's just like a relationship. It's a place we go and we do work and we find more of ourselves if we're willing to. And I think anyone who's listening, I just, my hope, whether they read my book or listen to my show or not, is just that they start to get curious about who am I actually? And um, what do I value? What do I value? What do I value? What makes me feel good? Because most of us, we don't know much past like I love, you know, and this is true facts about me. I, I love cupcakes and rap music and dancing and traveling. You know, we don't know much more than that. And I think there's a lot of information in resentment. Anyone who has a lot of resentment to me, anywhere you have a lot of resentment, gives you feedback you haven't had a boundary. Because a lot of resentment is a reflection of poor boundaries. Ah, so, so then good. So it's good. about where haven't you set a boundary and what is the need beneath that boundary? And those needs, those are your needs. Yes. Where do I end and where does someone else begin? Exactly. And I think that People aren't giving themselves that permission to say, I have needs. And and I think sometimes people get kind of fuzzy on what do I need versus what do I want? And I think that's life is an experiment. Life is the ultimate coach. Like, forget me being a life coach. Like, life is the coach. You know, like, you want it, you got a big question. Sit, sit with life. Sit with your questions. See, yeah. you know, not from a place of just, you know, letting it pass you by, but really engaging with like, this is a question I'm holding and I'm hoping to get some experience right now that shows me some answers, whether it's through conversations. Um, But I think life can really, really show you a lot when it comes to your needs. Talk about rock bottom and your rock bottom in particular. So you you, um, got out of the the Pentagon work and what what was next after that? Yeah. So 
when I was at the Pentagon, I had a lot of friends from grad school who were much better students than I was, honestly, and they couldn't get a job to save their lives. They were just applying, 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 hitting their head on a wall. So I did this little Starbucks gathering where they would meet up with me and I would go through their resume and tell them what they could do or how to network. I networked so hard to get my job and I just kind of haphazardly became really good at jobs. Are you somebody who is not afraid of bugging someone? And I use the Mm. word in in parentheses. Well, you know what? Or is it just a feeling that uh, I have value? I'm worthy of... I'm intuitive and I think I know when it's bugging someone. I know how to communicate in a way that I'm being myself, I'm not being anyone else, and I'm not being disruptive um, or according to my own terms. Yeah. yeah, I can read people. I think a lot of people, I don't know what the research is, um, who did this research, but you know, you've probably heard that term that like 85% of the, of the population is not self-aware. I don't know where how you could possibly measure that, but I can get that. A lot of people, we don't see what we're doing. Um, so yeah. Okay. So uh, a little Starbucks get together. Yeah, Starbucks get together. Um, I would have them all come and I, I would help them out. And then it got really busy. A lot of people would show up and people would say to me all the time, you should be a career expert. And I remember thinking like, I'm 25 years old now. Like I have no career to be an expert on. And what, are, what even is a career coach? This was before coaching was a thing. And I was like, all I know about is a hockey coach. Like, what do I do? Stand on the sidelines of your career and Shout. Cheer you up. Yeah. Wear a mullet in yeah. a suit. Yeah, literally. And then I Googled coaches and there's like rainbows and purple and which is not nothing wrong with rainbows and purple colors and these feely websites. But I'm pretty I got my head in the sky and my feet on the ground. And I'm I'm very proud of being in the mystical and the practical. So there's a lot of fuzzy websites in my perception that I was like, OK, this isn't me. Where do I belong? Eventually, I started the business anyway, had a private practice, started with job seeking Um and after a while, I got so good at helping people get a job offer. I created a course for it, and I didn't know how to market it. And I saw this webinar online that was all about like earning money through webinars. And I remember thinking, this might be a really cool way to get my message and my course out there. And support yourself. And support myself. And I grew up with parents who worked really hard. I grew up around active income, not passive income. And... They, the idea of making passive income sell, sounded like alien to me, you know, like I don't even. You put it up there and you hope for money to roll yeah, in. Yeah, like it just yeah. sounded like. And this is insane. for people paying to watch the webinar? Yes. So okay. I created a, a webinar by myself on how to get a job. And at the end, I talked about this course that I made and it was a series of seven or eight videos um, on how to land job offers, how to network with people, how to write emails that people respond to. I still have it to this day. Um, it's called something different. It's a little bit different called the Job Offer Academy, but um I made this webinar. Nobody would watch it, you know, because I didn't even know how to market it. And then I started tinkering with Facebook ads back when Facebook ads was a new thing and not so, you know, the Wild West at this point. But and I would pay for people to watch my webinar and I would hope that maybe one of them would buy my course. And it was a pretty expensive course, to be honest, like $997. We gave a lot. It was not just the course at the time. It was um, private coaching and all sorts of resume writer and all sorts of things. But we were around 80% of people at the time in our beta group that took the course and got the support got job offers within six weeks of completion. So I was really excited to get it out there. I was really, I to this day, there's like a job seeker in me. Like mm-hmm. um, sometimes I, I, just the other day for the first time in like five years, I looked at jobs online as if I was a job seeker for some reason. Mm-hmm. 
And I just got this little rush from it. Um, there's something about limitless opportunities mm-hmm. and letting... And what, the hunt. The hunt. The hunt. Like, yeah. Uh, for those of us who go through phases of collecting things, mm-hmm. you know, the high of finding the perfect vintage guitar or, uh, you know, the perfect woodworking saw is almost better than the act of playing guitar yeah. or sawing something. Yeah. It, that the hunt, the, the, the adrenaline oh, yeah. of the anticipation, the fantasy of the yeah. perfect. And I know it's a very entrepreneurial thing, too, like to like the hunt, be like pursuit. Um, one thing that's been really huge for me as I've developed over the years is masculine versus feminine energy. And a lot of that has to do with this story. Um, so I ended up hiring a, a coach. I had no money to pay the rent. I'd put all my money into Facebook ads, all my money into this course, probably spent $100,000 on ads, websites I didn't need, shopping carts. Like, you know, I just didn't. There was no one in the field yet that really could tell me what to do. It was so So new. it's not that you were opposed I just didn't know to where it. to go. You just didn't, yeah. Yeah. So I was just kind of like this lost puppy trying my best, but I really believed in what I was doing. And that was what fueled me. And I do think there's something to that. Like, it's not that passion, just because I say don't do what you love, do what you are, doesn't mean I don't value passion. You know? Right. It's valuable. It's just not the forefront. Um, so I kept going. That kept me going. And um, from there, I ended up doing a webinar, and I got my first sale. And I remember thinking, okay, I need help and I can't pay rent, but I believe in this and I know it can happen. I know it, I know it, I know it. And I found this guy that somebody recommended to me. And I called my mom and said, hey, mom, I need $3,000 to pay the rent. And she said, you better be paying the rent and not another person to help you. And sure, it was my first lie I've ever told my mom. You know, probably since I was a kid, probably lied to her when I was a little girl, but I'm pretty honest with her. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And I turned around and I paid this consultant a week before the rent was due. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I hope this works because I got no money left. And I told him, this is my last shot. You are my last stop. And I think kind of per your question earlier, when do you know you're done? I gave so much. And sometimes you're right on the brink of success. Um, And I think there's something about just trusting life. So he came in and he helped me change my webinar in some ways or others. He was a really brilliant guy, but there's something off about him. I just didn't know what it was. Um, but I was so bl- – I didn't even care what was off about him, honestly. I was like, if this guy can help me, I don't even care what's not resonating. Um, sure enough, I, we did a webinar. We got 40 customers. That's $40,000 in an hour. And I'd never, ever made money like that in my life. And I had $100,000 of debt. So just in an hour, I almost paid off half of my debt from over a year and a half of work. And I just remember thinking, whoa, that's unbelievable. Sure thing, we automate the webinar and, um, you know, I'm making money in my sleep. And I remember the day that that happened, I was at a coffee shop and this guy was helping me. He was getting 10% of what I was spending on advertising. And I remember the first $500 were spent and we got five sales, $5,000 back from 500. And it was the moment I realized, oh my gosh, I think this can work. And I went at 26. And and by the way, I I had a father who... He started a business. He had to make a really hard decision to close his doors, lose so much of his money. We lost our home. He nearly came claimed bankruptcy. So I grew up around a parental figure who worked really hard and, and lost his money. And that was my biggest fear, you know, seeing what I went through as a kid. So when I started making a lot of money, I was like, whoa, like, am, am I safe to make money? Like, do I even deserve this? Am I worthy of this? And I hired a lawyer. And said, hey, and I already had a lawyer here and there, but hey, can you go through all my materials 
and make sure that there's nothing off because I'm, I'm really playing a big game right now. We were getting to a point of spending almost a half million dollars a month in Facebook ads. What? Yeah, it was wild. And I went from no customers to like 3,000 customers in a month and a half. And I just had two people on my team. Like my customer support wasn't ready for the scale. I wasn't ready for, I didn't see it coming, but he was doing my ads. He was getting his percent. So imagine the incentive, the sooner he scales me, the more money he's about to make when right. this is working in the market. Right. So all of this said, I got really scared. I hired a lawyer and said, hey, can you look at everything? She said, look, I'm going to need some time to go through your materials. You've got so much going on in your business. I said, okay, I'm going to pause all my ads because I, there's not enough money in the world for me to trade my spirit. Like, <laughs> I just have been through enough to know that like, you got to like who you are at night. And I knew it even at that time, even with millions of dollars dangling from me, which is kind of, you know, wild to look back on. But I paused the ads without understanding because Facebook ads were new that the algorithm changes. And if you turn off your ads, it might not work the same way again. Mm. So this coach, I didn't know that. And I was just scared. And I said to him, I'm turning off my ad. The lawyers are going through everything. He said, you can't turn them off. You got to low, you got to put them lower. I didn't want to listen to him. Um, and I turned them off. And sure enough, I came back and I had 10 employees at this point and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in overhead per month. And I'm 26, 27, 28 years old. Just And he he said, you know, look, you just lost your entire ROI and I can help you, but you have to trust me. And of course I trusted him. Look how much he did. And, you know, there's some weird things like my partner being like, hey, his energy towards you is a little bit weird. You know, he, he feels like he's hitting on you. I don't know. It was just whatever. I I didn't pay attention to it because I had a one-track mind in business. And sure enough, he said, look, you need to trust me. What I, what I need to do is I need to push your budget really hard on Facebook because what happens is that the algorithm is going to start to favor you if you spend a lot on it. Eventually, it starts to click in and realize like you're an account that's going to spend a lot and it's going to start giving you better leads. And what's your gut telling you at this point? Is your is your gut in conflict with your mind or are you just kind cut of- off? I, I think I was cut off because I went through so much as a kid with my dad losing everything. And I just imagine imagine waking up every day after being broke and, you know, believing in an idea. But like, you know, I'd never made my first paycheck, I'd made $1,000 per paycheck every two weeks and at an ad agency. And then at the Pentagon, I made a pretty good living, but nothing like this. So right. to wake up in, a, in the morning and get a $30,000 transfer before I open my eyes and have coffee, it was just like the most bizarre experience for someone who doesn't know that life. Right. Um, so for me, I was just like, this has to come back. I want to take care of my parents. I, I want people to take my course. Like I worked really hard on this. I want it out there. This needs to come back. And so I didn't really listen to myself at all. I just wanted to outsource my results. I was like, I don't trust me anymore. This feels too big and too scary to trust mm -hmm. me. And I think a lot of us sometimes have moments in different ways that are like we look around and we think we need to, you know, delegate. Like we need to tell someone that this is a problem. They need to deal with it. And then we realize, oh, shoot, you know, I'm the boss. I'm the one that the problem falls mm -hmm. on. There is no one to tell. And it can be this lonely feeling sometimes of like, okay. And I think that's where I probably needed to go was this is on me. But instead, I trusted him. And um, I had an American Express card at that point with an unlimited, you know, <sighs> charge. And they didn't start calling me till we had half million dollars on that card. 
And I let him push it. And every week, my mom, she's a very smart woman with numbers. She's a bookkeeper. Numbers is her core skill set. And she would say, Ashley, you spent $100,000 this week and you made $30,000 back. Like, what are you doing? And, I'm, and he would say, yes, but it's clicking in and the, the tidal wave is coming, you know? So sure enough, you know, by the time I hit a half million dollars on my Amex, I couldn't pay it. We made like 150, 350K left. And I had payment plans coming in to support me a little bit, but it was like a tidal wave. And American Express started calling me. Meanwhile, I was engaged to this guy that was such a good guy that, you know, I'd mentioned and wanting to call off the wedding. My sister, um, who's been an addict my whole life, who I love, she's like my best friend growing up. Um, her addiction got the best of her. She had a bilateral stroke, became homeless, refused to accept help. And she was like such a fun, vibrant person. She she passed away unexpectedly. Oh, so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a really intense time. But I think... Ultimately, when I hit the wall with American Express, they call me and I'd never gotten a debt collector to call me. And when I think about so many of us, like, what is our challenge? Why don't we listen to ourselves? Why don't we pay attention? It's like we are more attached to what we want than what's true. And like Byron Katie says, like, reality is God, you know, um, he, or Eckhart Tolle, he says, when you stop fighting reality, that's the begin of, beginning of the end of all drama in your life, right? Mm -hmm. It's like really not wanting to be in reality because reality is scary. And I empathize with that, you know, like some people listening, like I know right now that you have a reality that may feel even scarier for sure than the one that I just shared. Um, but I think we get too in touch with the right now and not our future selves that that discipline and that willingness to go into the fire and to burn everything behind us is what it's going to take to become who we want to be. And I just wasn't willing to be that self. I wasn't willing to say my business isn't working anymore. This guy's not being honest with me. He has a, um, what's the word? Conflict of interest. You yeah. Know. I mean, him getting his commission based on how oh, much yeah. you spend. Oh yeah. Ooh. And he, he heard from me when the debt collectors called and he still sent me his $50,000 invoice as if I was going to be able to. And after, after he'd made hundreds of thousands of dollars off of my business, you would think he'd say, all right, I guess, this yeah. month is going to be a wash, you know, wasn't honest with you. To this day, he he still uh, reaches out. I haven't been in touch with him, but he doesn't understand where he, I don't want to say went wrong, but wasn't honest. And I think he knew. I think he knew. And I, I think ultimately everyone has a good heart, but sometimes when we need something, we don't we don't get into our essence of our hearts and we we go into survival. And, yeah, fear. Yeah, fear. Nothing, nothing can shake us out of our authenticity like yeah. fear. Yeah, it, it actually, there's so much science to it. I mean, it hijacks uh -huh. to our, our amygdala and our brain, our decision-making yes. center. It makes it tough to... Some of the things I've heard come out of my mouth when I'm trying to impress somebody yeah. is like, oh my God, who the fuck are you? Yeah. That was so not you. Yeah. You are disgusting. It's Grab your coat and go home. Yeah, yeah. It's so important to be surrounded by people that make you feel like you. You know, yeah. it's like people ask me all the time, like, well, I don't like what I'm doing and what do I? where do I start, right? And it's like, start with getting back to you again. Don't, you know, read my book, but it, it, that's not going to do anything until you're you. And I, what I mean by that is at least getting back into the things that make you feel good. Like I love dance classes. I have a few, I have a lot of girlfriends I love, but there's a couple of them in particular where when I'm with them, I'm just me again. Like there's something about them. I'm seeing one of them today after you, um, my very best friend, Nicole, uh, Napavar, she's a therapist and she's just, 
I mean, I don't know why I have best friends who are therapists, you right. know, um, lucky me. And it's like when I'm with her, the questions she asks me, it's like I just get back into my body. I get back into my my heart and it feels good to feel good. And sometimes we forget what it feels like to feel good. We get mm-hmm. used to not feeling good. There's a lot of people walking around with illnesses that, you know, maybe not life threatening, but they make them not feel so great. And they get so used to not feeling great. They're not even attuned to what's available. So once you get attuned to that, it becomes easier to feel what no feels like in your body and to feel what yes feels like in your body. Um, so spending time with those sorts of people uh, has been really, really big for me. Well, Ashley, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, kudos with the book. It's great. It's called U-Turn. That's Y-O-U-Turn. Um, where can people uh, find the book, find you on social media, all that stuff? Yeah, I'm so honored to be here with you. I love this show so much. I've oh, listened thanks. to some of the episodes. I saw that you had Will Cole on, and I just I, I keep up. Uh, so it's fun to be here with you. You're doing such good work. As far as my book, it's everywhere books are sold. It's Y-O-U turn. It's bright yellow. The subheader is um, get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. There's a lot of exercises. People like to listen to it and also write in the book. Some very penetrating questions that you, you. The, that you ask in there and especially around money. Yeah. That was some of the, the – I really love that you talk about the relationship between trauma and, and money. Yeah, there's a quiz in there on your money, your approach and your mindset with money, which yeah. was took a lot of time to create that I really love. And yeah. Um, I love hearing from listeners. It just hit the bestseller list in Taiwan, which is That's awesome. cool to hear. Nice. I it's, it's it's funny how life works. It's like I go on podcasts in, in the U.S. and I get it so out there. And then I, I don't have any audience in Taiwan and it just does its own thing. Yeah. And I think that's how our careers all are is like we push in some places and we forget that some areas grace is going to fill yes. in the gaps. We never imagine that. Yeah. We never imagine that. And the difference between that and somebody coming and rescue us so we don't have to have take on any responsibility. And yeah. that's something I struggle with is understanding the difference between grace and wanting to be rescued. Yes, yeah. 100%. Uh, so uh, website, yeah, socials? Yeah, com. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L. And I have a quiz on there to figure out your best career fit. Um, there's so much on there. My favorite podcast episodes. And I'm definitely going to have you on, Paul, to to talk to me. And here. the podcast is called U-Turn. U-Turn Podcast. And yeah. it's um, really focused on helping you elevate your mindset and work in love. So I'm interviewing guests every single week, doing solos, S-O-U-L-O's. Nice. Uh, sharing some downloads that I'm having about life. And it's, it's such a, it's my favorite thing in the world. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> love how crazy. Had to get one last little shake in. Uh, many, many thanks to Ashley. Be sure to uh, check out her book and uh, check out her podcast. Let's jump into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, uh, survey filled out by a woman who calls herself 7 out of 10 on a good day. Uh, about her love addiction, your love keeps my mind right. Well, so good. Thank you for that. Same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, if you're ever in Oakland, go to a car show. That might be the most interesting pseudonym we've had. Or who knows? Maybe that's your legal name. In, in which case, I'm so sorry. Uh, but it, it's also kind of nice that you can pull that out if, if, if you get pulled over. They look at your ID and you're like... 
they look at that ID and they're like, this person is serious about cars. I don't know why I pulled them over on your way, young lady. About her depression, chronic depression is like discovering you had the emergency brake on while driving to work. About living with an abuser, my ex-boyfriend once threatened to kill himself in front of me when we fought on the way back to his place. He then opened the passenger door of my car while we were on the highway. I was terrified for him. And you know what I like about that one, about your description of that one, was that you labeled that under living with an abuser because that is abusive. And a lot of times when we live or have somebody close to us who is emotionally manipulative and uses, you know, threatening to harm themselves or kill themselves or do other things that are manipulative, we don't look past that. We get so terrified that we think we're in charge of that person's safety rather than they are an autonomous adult and... You know, what they're doing is right, not right. Now, not that we can't have compassion for the fact that they're in pain, but um, it's so easy to try to take on somebody else's shit when we feel like they're, um, like we're in charge of their safety. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by um, a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as you can can too. They identify as pansexual. They're in their 30s. They, says it, they say that they were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, they were the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, they were raped uh, as a teen slash uh, 20 year old. Uh, they write, fast forward several months later, I found out I was pregnant. Being from an extremely religious family, I was forced to keep the baby. Also, as a child, my mom breastfed me till I was five. She would often make comments about my weight and body, saying how I could be attractive if only I would lose weight. She did not give me privacy, removing my door from its hinges in my teen years. That is that is usually, I mean, all the... You know, not to minimize the other stuff, but to taking the door off its hinges, that is the man of all the surveys that I've read, because I've read tens of thousands of surveys over the years that people have filled out. And so many of the ones where there is the covert or over incest is the taking the door off the hinges, uh, you know, forcing the, the child to keep the bathroom door open while they're bathing or using the toilet or vice versa. Um, and uh, makes me so angry. Uh, she often wanted us to change in the same room and insisted we sleep together till I was 16 where we would spoon. She and my dad would both kiss me on the lips, but my mom also kissed with tongue. Oh, my God. I thought this was normal up until recently when entering counseling. It's so good that you are in counseling. It's amazing what we will accept as our normal. And I love, too, that they're extremely religious, and yet those things to them are okay. Um, they've never been physically abused. They've been emotionally abused. My parents were often volatile, with my dad always angry growing up. He would often shame me for putting on makeup, getting seconds at dinner, not wearing a certain outfit, not wanting to be kissed or touched, etc. My mom would then 
retreat to crying fits and lock herself in the bathroom when her and my dad fought. When I came out as queer in high school, my parents, the youth pastors, and the main pastor, who was my cousin, told me I was demon-possessed and insisted on, quote, anointing, unquote, me with holy oil and surrounding the house while trying to cast out the demon. I'm going to look into moving there. My parents and church continued their homophobia, banning me from praise and worship, which I was a part of at the time, while spreading my, quote, sin, unquote, to the rest of the youth group. I was severely bullied after that by most uh, at school as I grew up in the Midwest in a small town. My parents bullied me as well as multiple people I dated, going as far as spitting in my then-partner's face as well as trying to take my kid away based on a child needing a father figure. Oh, man. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, I remember many fun family vacations, and my parents always provided for me materially darkest thoughts. I've often thought about what a relief it would be to kill myself. I've struggled with suicidal ideation since I was 10 and figured out I was queer. I often wish I was not a mother as I have flashbacks of how she was conceived nearly daily. That has to be hard. It has to be so hard. Fuck. Darkest secrets. The first girl I had sex with was a minor. I was 19 and she was 14. At the time, I justified it because she came on to me and had had sex with several of my other friends. I regret it to this day and I wish I could apologize because it was my responsibility to stop it. Uh, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I have feeder fantasies about extreme weight gain of a partner. I also have amnesia fantasies about taking advantage of someone losing their memory. These fantasies almost never involve me as I cannot get off unless I think in terms of a story. I also think about the incest frequently. It makes me feel dirty and confirms in my head that I am a lowlife and a sexual pervert as my parents always accused me of that since finding out my sexuality. It's amazing how we will take on the projections of people around us and just absorb that into our into our psyche what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i'd like to tell my parents how hypocritical they were and are i wish i could tell them exactly how i feel about their faith and expose them they are consumed with image in the community and church Uh, so to tarnish that would make them pay attention to what their actions have done to my brother and i Man, that feeling, especially when it comes to religious hypocrisy, is so tempting to want to see those people humiliated. Um, And I know that's not a spiritual (laughs) thought to have, but it's so it it it's so enticing because it feels like it's the only thing that could release the rage. I mean. This didn't happen to me, and I'm feeling rage at the things and that that you experienced and the hypocrisy. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could feel a bit of peace. I can't remember what that feels like. 
I also wish I could have a better relationship with my daughter is I feel like I'm faking most interactions with her. I love her, but I have trouble connecting on an emotional level due to my own trauma surrounding her birth. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared bits and pieces with past partners and my best friend from high school. I'm just starting to share these things with a therapist. It went okay with the parts that I did share, though I've been told by my parents that mental health isn't real and can be prayed away, so I often feel ashamed after sharing. Oh my God. I know you know intellectually that that, that is not the truth, but man, that connection between the emotional and the negative thoughts and myths and negative self-beliefs is so hard to overcome. How do you feel after writing these things down a little lighter than before? Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Take everything one day at a time and don't give up on yourself. So true. So true. Thank you for that survey, man. You really, uh, you dug deep. I appreciate that. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, nobody. Hmm. Is that humility or self-hatred? Uh, I love dreams that are so real you wake up happy or sad or mad, but it was worth the entertainment. That's a good one. I don't know if I enjoy dreams where I wake up mad or sad, but I do enjoy the ones where I wake up uh, happy or you feel like you got to experience something that you can't experience in, in real life. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Zeep Zorp. He identifies as other. Uh, I've always identified as straight, but lately I've found myself kind of turned on by the men I see in straight porn. I genuinely can't imagine myself dating or kissing a man, though. Uh, he's in his 20s. He says that he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I have a very vivid memory of skinny dipping at my grandpa's house when I was a child, possibly around four or five years old. Since then, I've learned that he was a pedophile who had molested my dad on a regular basis for most of his childhood. I've never felt particularly haunted by this memory, but now that I know the full context, I can't help but wonder how this event might have fucked me up in some way. Also, my father was a photographer who mostly took photos of scantily clad slash nude models. He kept a lot of his PG-13 rated photos casually framed around the house, talked about being a regular customer at Hooters, and would even mention going to nudist resorts. His whole life seemed to revolve around his sexuality, and he did a very poor job of holding these details from me as a child. Uh, he's never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. Uh, my stepfather was a narcissist. Instead of setting clear rules and explaining their purpose, he would just wait and blow up on me when I did something he didn't like. Oh, and my mom was an alcoholic and a pill popper. We once spent a day searching the city for her and found her drunk and passed out next to a creek. She's an incredibly kind and caring woman, but was totally unavailable to me as a mother because of her addictions. But let's give her credit for, in the middle of a city, finding a creek. That's just, that's talent. 
any positive experiences with abusers. My stepfather patiently worked with my mom for over a decade to get her sober. He also always went out of his way to get me out of any crisis I was in. My mom and dad both had the best intentions despite their flaws as parents and cared for me unconditionally and without judgment. My dad also just doesn't understand what is and isn't appropriate because of the boundaries his dad crossed with him at a young age, so it's hard to criticize him for being so embarrassingly promiscuous. That is, that is hard to watch in somebody um, because you have compassion for the fact that they weren't given the tools and healthiness wasn't modeled for them. But then when their shit gets all over us, it's uh, it's a hard place to be in. And I think that's why boundaries with compassion and diplomacy are so huge because we can uh, express our feelings without shaming somebody else. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think that I won't even feel a sense of freedom and calm in my life until my whole family is dead. Just thinking about any of them gives me an overwhelming feeling of guilt. Most people know me as an extremely empathetic, innocent, happy person, but I feel like the way I think and act in private can be borderline sociopathic. I sometimes sometimes fantasize about dating underage women so that I can feel what it's like to be loved without the responsibilities of adulthood factoring into the equation. I never had that opportunity. I'm sexually attracted to my sister and stepsister. I think it's because they were the only two females near my, near my age that I was allowed to be close with. Darkest secrets. In my early teens, I used a spy camera to record my stepsister and stepsister undressing on multiple occasions. One time, my sister found the camera and took it with her. I convinced her to give it back to me by telling her I simply set it down while messing with the settings and forgot to pick it back up. I'm terrified that this incident traumatized her and will come back to haunt me. I'm addicted to a website that uses facial recognition to identify pictures of people on the internet every day for the past week. I've spent four plus hours trying to find nudes of people I know on the internet. It's caused me to fall behind on my work. Today, I put a website blocker on all of my browsers, so hopefully that snaps me out of it long enough to stop doing it. Thank you for sharing all of that stuff, and and I, I want to encourage you to find a community uh, of, of people. You know, the website browser is great, but a website browser alone isn't going to heal the shit in us that needs to be healed if we're going to um, feel... Uh, safer from compulsive behaviors that we use to soothe ourselves that aren't healthy and may harm ourselves and others and it's already clearing clearly harming you it's affecting it's affecting your work and um i imagine it's affecting your personal relationships uh as well as how you feel and think about yourself um Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about my wife taking control and basically using me without any any ambiguity whatsoever about whether or not she's in the mood. Her libido is much lower than mine and makes me feel extremely needy and undesirable. Voyeurism and incest are obviously both kinks of mine as well. Sharing this makes me feel sad. I mostly just wish uh, my wife would be 
as enthusiastic about sex as she was when we first started dating. The other kinks are fun, but I can do without them. I simply want to feel more desired during sex. That's got to be a hard one. And I know a lot of people who are in relationships where their partner is not into it. And that, um, while I've experienced that a few times uh, in the the past, um, it's... it's, um, It's something that that somebody who is in a long-term relationship, I I can't imagine what that is like to to feel that for years and years and years or decades. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to say I'm sorry to my sister who found the spy camera. That incident probably had an incredibly damaging impact on her life and her view of me. It was impulsive and unforgivable. Even if she believed my excuse, she still had the shock of finding a spy camera while in her most vulnerable state. I understand better now how violated and unsafe that can make someone feel, and I hate myself for potentially inflicting that on her. I can't remember if you said you're in therapy or not, but you know, I think um, talking to a therapist about that and, and... talking about maybe making an amends to your sister. Uh, it, it might be a good idea, as uncomfortable or as terrifying as that seems. But again, I'm not a therapist, so just throwing that out there. Have you shared things with others? Uh, just the problems I've had with my parents. I regularly share or hint at my mom's addictions when asked why I don't drink or do drugs. It usually goes fine, but I think it sucks that you have to have some kind of alcohol-related trauma in your life for people to understand why you don't drink. You know, a good thing to say is uh, that you're allergic to alcohol. I know a lot of people uh, use that one. In fact, some of my friends joke. They'll say um, about themselves, um, I'm allergic to alcohol. When I drink, I break out in handcuffs. (laughs) Uh, To someone like me, it feels like living in a world where Alzheimer's-themed parties are commonplace, and you have to explain to people over and over why you find that idea uncomfortable. Who the fuck throws Alzheimer's-themed parties? Oh, it feels like living in a world. I thought there were actually. I'm dressed up as Papa. I don't know where my keys are. This is fun. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit relieved. I thought I would take some of these admissions to the grave with me. I can see I definitely need professional help now. Well, I want to... I want to congratulate you. I hope this doesn't sound condescending, but I want to congratulate you on digging down into that stuff and seeing that you could benefit from professional help and and or support groups. You deserve to feel human connection. Um, I, I was uh, at my support group last night and we were talking about you know, the whole Instagram plague of sharing your highlight reel with the world and, you know, getting a picture of yourself from the best angle with a beautiful sunset and all of that. The support groups in many ways are the exact opposite of that. It's we bring in the worst pictures, uh, as an analogy, of ourselves. And that's the very currency we connect to each other on. And there is a feeling of letting go 
and sharing those things that uh, if you've never experienced it, it's spiritual is the only word that, that I think really accurately describes it. I feel in a connection to something greater than, than myself. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you're like me, you need to physically block yourself from ever being able to make these mistakes. Every time I find a new vice, I am unable to put it down until my access to it is cut off. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves by another name. And they write, I love getting the right thing at the right time. I've been through a separation and divorce over the past year, listening to the anger and trauma episode. Part of it clicked, hearing what I needed to work on that I already knew was lacking in myself, giving myself space to process and communicate my boundaries. I wrote up some phrases to practice similar to what I've been doing in my parenting so I can give myself space to use my logical brain to respond. Thomas, thank you. Thomas was uh, Thomas Hayes was the guest on the anger and trauma episode. This is from the babysitter survey, and this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Monster Question Mark. Uh, she says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She's in her 40s. Uh, she identifies as bisexual. She writes, I've always wondered if I were bi. I never said that to anyone. My daughter asked me when she was 10 or 11 if she were allowed to be gay. I said, of course. She is now 17 and a proud lesbian. I sometimes wonder if I did something to, quote, make her a lesbian. Uh, uh, regarding the, the babysitter survey, uh, I was 11 or 12 babysitting a five-year-old neighbor boy and his friend. I somehow thought it would be a good idea to ask them to come into the bedroom while I, quote, napped, unquote. I laid on the bed and pulled down my shorts and underwear. I encouraged them to explore my private parts. They were playing with small figures or Legos or something, and I encouraged them to place them between my labia. I was not sexually aroused by this, but I knew it wasn't right. The phone rang, and I told the boy to answer it. It was his dad calling to check on him from work. I'm not sure what he told his dad, but when I took the phone, his dad asked what was going on. I told him I was laying down to rest while the boys played. Within 20 minutes, the dad was home, and I was told to go home. I never babysat them again. Nothing was ever said to my parents or the police as far as I know. Another time I was babysitting a different boy, a four-year-old, and I asked him to lie down with me. I exposed myself to him, but he didn't touch me. He looked very afraid. I can still see his fearful big brown eyes. Uh, I never told anyone until college when I confessed to an Episcopal priest during a retreat. He did not make me feel bad, but told me I was forgiven. I also told a couple of counselors slash therapists over the years without getting into details. I've always been afraid I will be prosecuted. I believe it's part of the reason I have self-sabotaged my entire life. Even though I didn't get any sexual pleasure from it, I knew it wasn't right. I'm still trying to uncover the reasons why I did it. I worry about the boys, what kind of effect it had on them. I think about them frequently, like once a month, every month, my whole life. I'm almost 50 now. I tried Googling these two 
the two whose names I remember. I don't know the third kid's name, uh, the friend of the neighbor boy. I didn't find anything definitive. A few years ago, I went directly from my therapist's office to meet with my mom to tell her. She works in the field of sexual assault and abusive children. I felt I had to tell her because what it surfaced uh, what if it surfaced and she lost her job? Question mark. I know she didn't shame me or berate me or act like she was mortified or worried about herself. She also didn't report me. I feel now like it was very selfish of me to tell her. I probably put her in a terrible position. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I feel a lot of self-loathing around these two incidents. I wish I knew whether these two boys were okay. I wish I could forgive myself. Do you feel any damage was done? Was it innocent or natural or somewhere in between? I don't know. I don't think it was innocent or natural. I also don't think I was acting out of malice or malevolence. I think I just wanted sexual attention. When I was around eight, I found stacks of hardcore porn magazines in the attic of my stepdad's brother's house. I was riveted. I knew I shouldn't look at them, but I did. I subsequently experimented sexually with several female friends until I hit puberty and then I pursued males. I was slightly overweight and wore classes, but I never had a shortage of boyfriends in middle school. I never had one boyfriend in high school or college, however. I had crushes. I messed around with guys at parties, but no relationships. I masturbated a lot, but never looked at porn ever again after that first experience to this day. Well, it, it it's... I mean, I don't think it takes a, a genius to see the relationship between you discovering the pictures of women exposing themselves and and then engaging in that behavior. And I mean, try to remember that that you were a child when these things happened. Um, and it, I think it's time to for, to forgive yourself. You're not doing those behaviors anymore. At least it seems like you're not. You haven't mentioned that, and that that means everything. That means everything. And uh, as I say on the podcast a lot, if we live in self-flagellation about something from the past that we can't control, um, we are of little use to ourselves and those around us by just obsessing and self-hating. Now, letting go of that uh, is is easier than, said than done, but I think processing it with, with people um, is is a good place to start and maybe open up more to that therapist. I, it, it happened in the past, so I don't believe, and you were a child, uh, 40 years ago, that that is not under mandatory uh, reporting as as far as, as I know. Um, but thank you for filling all of that out and sharing that. That must have been really uh, difficult to go back down into into those things. I'm I'm so grateful to all of you that that fill out the surveys with the stuff that's painful to to dredge up. And then finally, this is from the love survey, and this is filled out by Sunshine on a Cloudy Day. And they write, "I love waking up warm and snuggly in my bed every morning." The sound of the coffee maker dribbling out that life-giving liquid. The comfort of my beautifully padded bar stool I sit on when I step outside to smoke my first cigarette of the day. The peacefulness of the trees as they sway in the breeze. The crispness of the air as I take my morning walk. 
I love the adoring love I see in my mother's eyes, the calming sound of her voice. I love the sheer gratitude I feel when I walk to the beach, the majesty of the waves and the tickle of the sand between my toes. I love listening to your podcasts, Paul, and every single one of the surveys. I feel so much compassion for the people filling them out as you read them. Some I relate to, others I get to learn about the plight of them. I love all things good and purposefully look for even the tiniest things to be grateful for. Beautiful. B-U-T-full. Yeah, we got to break that one up into three syllables. There's, that's, that's Legally, that's required when something is that nice and sweet. I like Gracie. <laughs> She's just sound asleep. Um, well, I hope uh, I hope you got something out of this episode. And uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck or alone or hopeless, um, there is help out there. Our our family is out there. We may not have found them yet, but I'm so glad I found my family because it made life 180 degrees different for me. And I found what I was looking for in things that could never help that part of me. And uh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't looked death in the face and thought I am going to fucking kill myself if I don't find a different way to live. And um, I don't wish that pain on anybody else, but I wish the results of asking for help and finding a community that loves you unconditionally. So never forget, you're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.